Welcome to the Conflict Tipping Podcast with Dr. Laura May. Hello and welcome to the Conflict Tipping Podcast from Mediate.com, the podcast that explores social conflict and what we can do about it. I'm your host, Laura May, and today I have with me Luisa Almeida Santos, PhD researcher at the Stanford Social Neuroscience Lab and collaborator with the Stanford Polarization and Social Change Lab. Her research centers on addressing empathetic failure towards dissimilar others, as well as some other fantastic stuff. So let's just dive in. What is your doctoral research and why are you doing it? Why is it interesting? Yeah, so I'm originally from Brazil and um, I lived in the U.S. for the last 10 years. And one thing that really was noticeable to me when I moved here was that similar kind of divides and polarization that I saw happening in my country were happening here as well. The 2016 election happened when I was in college. And I think that really made me, you know, kind of stop and think about why, why is this happening? You know, it kind of I saw firsthand people who really liked each other having a really hard time talking to each other after, you know, elections in, in the U.S. and in Brazil. And that, you know, my interest in psychology, I really wanted to use what we know about how people think and their motivations and trying to investigate a little bit more, you know, why does political conflict arise in people's everyday lives? And are there things that we can do to mitigate those conflicts? I love that. You're here doing a whole PhD on the kind of thing I'm trying to question in a podcast. And I feel like yours is going to be a lot more publishable with a lot less wobbling at the end. So that's already a great job. And so I understand as well that your thesis has a few different major components, one of which is about empathy, right? Yeah, that's correct. And so could you please firstly tell me what is empathy? Because we've had a couple of guests in this podcast talk about empathy and compassion and stuff. And I always like to start off by defining, all right, what are we actually talking about? Yeah. So that's actually a great question. People disagree sometimes quite a bit on what empathy is. So the view I take on it is that empathy is kind of this multifaceted construct that has three main components. So the first component is perspective taking. So it's this more cognitive effort to try to understand what a person believes, what they might be thinking. A second component is experience sharing. So if I have a friend and that friend tells me a story that, you know, he feels bad because something happened to him, I might feel bad too because I kind of like am sharing that experience with him. Another example is like, if I see a person walking a tight rope, I may not be able to stop myself. My hands might start sweating and I might try to look, like trying to share that your hands. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. With, with the person who is actually experiencing it. And the third component is empathic concern, which, you know, some people call it compassion as well. So empathic concern is I care about someone. So I get concerned for their well-being. Um, the distinction between these things sometimes can sound kind of hard to disentangle. They are supported by different neural substrates. And sometimes a way to disentangle this is to think about like, for example, psychopaths are really good at taking people's perspectives, but they're really bad at empathic concern. Like they have one element of it intact, but not another. Like you might really want to take someone's perspective if you're playing poker with them, but you might not be concerned about their well-being at all. So, so they are dissociable. But in normal life, they tend to co-occur very frequently. 
So usually when a person is taking the perspective, they're concerned for a person's well-being and they're sharing a little bit of their experience as well. It's more kind of on the edge cases that we see this complete dissociation. That's really helpful, actually. And so if I understand it correctly, it's kind of like it's one idea is I know what you feel, this perspective mm-hmm. taking. The other is I feel what you feel. So that idea mm-hmm. is like sharing experience. Mm-hmm. And then I'm feeling for you, which is the empathetic concern or compassion. Yeah, I think that's one way of saying it. So, yeah, so exactly. And you can feel, you can have empathy and positive experience as well, just that the negative ones are easier to think about. But yeah, it's usually this concern to improve well-being. Um, right. And it can even be if a person had a really positive event, you want to make sure that they're celebrating it, right? Like it can have the flip side of positivity as well. Absolutely. And I really like that you stress that these often co-occur because I think that's something that we often miss when we're discussing empathy and compassion. So I'm really glad that you made that point. But I understand that a lot of your work is about cross-partisan empathy. So which kind of empathy are we talking about there and who are the partisans that we're talking about? Yeah, so my work has focused on the U.S. partisan conflict. So the Democrats, Republicans? So Democrats and Republicans, yeah. So, yeah, so when I'm talking about partisans, talking about Democrats and Republicans and what type of empathy we're talking about, it's really kind of a mix. You know, I think that we start by trying to motivate people to perspective take. I think that's kind of the the entry point, because I feel like when conflict gets pretty bad, it's hard for people to even want to engage or to take the perspective or to, you know, with those they disagree with. So so I think it starts with perspective taking. But as I said, it co-occurs with other things. And it's not only a Machiavellian, like, I'm going to take your perspective because I want to win the argument, but it's actually associated with reductions in partisan animosity, for example. Like people actually tend to like each other a little bit more once they try to engage in an empathic way across divides. Mm-hmm. So it's like, oh, I know what you feel and you can't help but start feeling that feeling as well. Is that what's going on? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think that it humanizes a perspective that you might not, yeah, think about before. Amazing. And so, I mean, it's great to humanize people. Is that the reason we, I mean, should we empathize with out partisans, as you put it? Like, and how, how should we do it? Should I be sitting here and going, all right, let me think about who I disagree with and think about what they're going through? Is that what you research? No. So, yeah, so it's really great question. I think that first I like try to tiptoe around making normative judgments of what we should do. Mm-hmm. I mostly try to show like when we do it, there's these things might have potentially positive consequences. But I understand that some things are very tricky, right? Like. If you feel that a person's a threat to who you are and what you stand for, you know, and, and it might even wish you harm. It's it's very, very difficult to try to put yourself in their shoes and empathize with their perspective. So I'm not saying people owe anyone empathy. I think in my work, we just empirically kind of demonstrate that once you engage empathically, you might accomplish things that you value. So in one of our papers, for example, a lot of people say that they want less division and they actually value having friends with different perspectives and having friends even from the other political party, but that these, it's becoming harder and harder. And the other thing that people value is usually communicating with others 
in a way that resonates. Like you're not seeming like you're talking to a wall, but that people are actually feeling like building these common ground as you go. So the reason why we focused on empathy is because we thought that it could help people meet those goals of engaging in more positively across divides and arguing for their beliefs in a way that is more palatable to those on the other side, which can help them even do things like be better able to convince those that disagree with them of their point of view. So that is a little bit what we're trying to do. How did you actually get your study participants to perform this empathy? In terms of how we do it, we never really told people in our studies how to do it. We just told them work that shows that empathy can be useful when navigating conflict. And it turns out that people are very good about figuring out how to do it by themselves. You know, we don't need to like explicitly tell them. In one study, we have this interaction, like one shot interaction, where we told one group of people that empathy is useful. And the other group of people, we told them that empathy can actually sometimes backfire. So we had these two conditions. And we asked those two groups to write messages to try to convince someone who disagreed with them who was from the out party. So we recruited people who had party stereotypical views on gun laws. So if I'm a Democrat, I would be supportive of stricter gun laws. Mm -hmm. And I'll be arguing for that to a Republican. And then what we did is we collected all these messages and then we asked a different group of people who never write anything about empathy to and we randomized them to read one of these messages. And they disagreed with the, the message writer on both party affiliation and views on gun laws. So if, you know, person A wrote this message and was a Democrat arguing for stricter gun laws, person B, the reader, would be a Republican that actually supports the gun laws do not become stricter. Mm-hmm. And then this person would read this message and were right. Like, how much did you like the person who wrote this message? How much empathy is this played? It is message towards people in your group. How persuasive is this message? And we're actually measuring their attitudes towards gun laws to see if there's any change in how they viewed gun laws after reading this message. And what we found is that first we analyzed the language in these messages to see, did the empathy manipulation change anything of how people communicate, right? Because that would be the first thing that we need to change to see any of those downstream consequences. We did both more data-driven natural language processing analysis and kind of more top-down analysis with like coders. But I think the thing that stood out to me is that the language features that were in the, what we call high utility of empathy condition, the one that said that empathy is useful, was the phrase, I understand, which I think is such a powerful marker of, of kind of perspective taking, right? Like these people are trying to say, okay, let me think how this person would think. and tell them that I I understand why they're concerned. And so Democrats can say, I understand that gun laws are important to you and gun ownership is part of the Constitution here in the U.S. And then words like however would pop up. So this is people then trying to state their own views of saying, however, like I think the way things have gotten has just gotten too far. And then they would argue for their beliefs. And the other thing that jumped out to me is when we did topic analysis, so we try to see themes that would occur in these messages, the most associated theme with the high utility of empathy condition was things that we share, you know, so they talk about like 
U.S. and Americans and, you know, kind of these ideas of common groundness, while the theme that emerged on the low utility of empathy condition, the ones that learned that empathy might backfire, was actually partisan divide. So people talk a lot about what Democrats think, what Republicans think. So those are kind of features that we thought that were signaling empathy in the high utility condition, you know, appeals to common ground, things like we can all agree or was another phrase that popped up that we all care about safety or just kind of disagreeing how to get there and things like that. All right. So I understand what you're saying. See what I did there. However, yeah. one thing I'd like to ask is whether emotional appeals also appeared in these messages because if I'm sitting there trying to convince somebody, maybe to show them a window into my soul, I'm not just talking about, oh, I understand this. I agree this. I'm saying, oh, I feel scared when there's like no gun control or something, or I feel scared when I can't protect my property or whatever the case might be. Was there also an element of that going on? We didn't see a very clear element of emotionality on the messages and the ways that we measured it, but they might be present. I think that one anecdotal evidence that pops up to me is I remember, I believe one of the messages was a Republican woman who lives in a rural area saying exactly, like, I feel scared. And like, if you took my gun away. I have little kids and I wouldn't be able to defend myself. So in that sense, there is kind of like an appeal for for I think gun laws are intrinsically such an emotional issue that there was no difference in emotional content across the high empathy or the low empathy condition. I think it was just present throughout because people will talk about school shootings, these really terrible gun-related events and sometimes crime it depends a little bit on the side of the political spectrum you're in. But I think fear is like a really common thing when talking about these issues for sure. Yeah. I mean, because as you just mentioned, gun laws especially is so emotionalized as part of the political debate in America that, yeah, that totally makes sense that, of course, the messages would be emotional whether mm -hmm. or not people thought empathy worked. So that's really interesting. Exactly. It makes me really curious whether Similar things will play out with other debates or in other contexts. But more importantly, speaking of curiosity, I understand you do a little bit of work on this as well as part of your project. Like, what actually is that? Yeah. So in our previous work, we found that people who believed that empathy was useful because we, you know, told them so, it seems to change a range of a, what we call approach-oriented tendencies. So it would make people like out partisans a little bit more, desire bipartisanship a little bit more. They wouldn't think about people who disagree with them as completely immoral. So there seemed to be this kind of more approach-oriented responses. So we were really interested if that could impact curiosity as well. And the reason why we're interested in curiosity is because there is this explosion of work saying that partisans have pretty bad and inaccurate perceptions of what the other side believes. So they tend to think that our partisans are more hateful, violent and extreme than they actually are. And we thought one way that it's been really popular in order to improve outcomes is to correct people's misperceptions. So you collect data on a representative sample of people and then you show like, hey, you thought that our partisans hated you this amount. They actually hate you. Not that much, you know, and then they hate you way less than you saw. <laughs> Exactly. And then people are like, oh, you know, and, and for example, for support for violence, it's actually a pretty strong self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Like sometimes people believe out partisans are very supportive of partisan violence. And that 
leads them to support violence themselves. So when you correct this misperception and you're like, actually, people are not very supportive of violence, it reduces people's own support for partisan violence. So this type of misperception correction has been booming in, in kind of the, the empirical literature in this space. So we were interested in if we're able to improve curiosity, which is kind of this domain general thing, it would lead people to approach. Basically, they would place themselves in a misperception correction condition. If we gave them the choice to learn about co-partisans or learn about out-partisans, they might pick the choice to learn about out-partisans a little bit more. And that could lead them to correct their misperceptions and shape those kind of downstream consequences that we care about. And one of those that we were really focused on is support for democracy. So basically, you get people curious, they go find out information, and they fix their own misperceptions. Then. That is correct. Yeah, yeah. Now, that's so interesting. And I really liked what you said about this idea about almost a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Like, oh, you believe the others are violent, so you'll get violent or keep escalating, what have you. Because I did read in one of your papers that emotion beliefs can be self-fulfilling prophecy. So what does that mean? And I mean, what kinds of prophecies are we talking about other than this idea of violence? And are there kinds of prophecies we should actually be trying to fulfill? I know you don't like the word should, but, you know, I'll let you on a podcast. (laughs) Yeah. So we thought that these emotional beliefs can be self-fulfilling prophecies themselves, because if you believe that empathy is useful, you may engage empathically with the other side and it may become useful. And what we mean by that was kind of the findings we had on this kind of one-shot interaction study in which people who were empirically induced to believe that empathy uh, is a useful thing. They then communicated with outpartisans in ways that were more empathic. And it became useful for them. All partisans found them more likable and were found the messages more persuasive than those who were told that empathy might not be useful. So that's kind of what we mean by the self-fulfilling prophecy. It seems like you have these beliefs and the moment you act on them, they might make them come true. And on the empathy side, it's this positive effect. But as we were talking about in the misperception side, it can have this negative effect where people can actually end up if you have this misperception that partisans support violence and they don't and you act violence towards them, you might then make them violent in response, right? So it, you kind of create the world that you feared in the first place. So if we were to tell everyone listening to this podcast that you should try and be empathetic or that being empathetic will be beneficial, are we kind of doing the experiment that you did on a larger scale? Because everyone listening will go out and be more empathetic and mm-hmm. start building some bridges. I feel, I feel like that's what's going to happen. <laughs> I hope so. Yeah, I do think that there's a real power. I think that sometimes, and this is boring, the words of my colleague and advisor, Jamil Zaki, it feels that bringing empathy to conflict is like bringing an ice cream cone to a gunfight. It feels radically naive. Like, you know, (laughs) you can be there eating. I mean, sure, you might die. It's going to be real violent, but at least it's delicious on the way out. Exactly. Yeah. And and, and it feels really naive. But, you know, what our work has found is that it actually isn't. It can be a really powerful way of connecting across divides and building common ground. It doesn't necessarily mean that you have to give up on the things you'll believe in. That's so nice and so beautifully put. And also, I loved his book, The War for Kindness. Absolutely brilliant book. So, you know, <laughs> you're obviously a big fan of his work as well because you're working with him. But oh, that really, that really effective book, I think, as well. Um, people who are interested in empathy and compassion, perhaps the burnout that can come with it. But 
But that's yeah. not what we're talking about today, but I do love that book a lot. So, you know, kudos to him. I think that that's really powerful what you've just said, though, because, you know, I was really struck by what a former colleague of mine said. Like, we sat down, I was in New York for some reason, and we sat down for lunch one day, and this was after the 2016 election, and it was mm-hmm. after Christmas, and this person, you know, I was like, oh, you know, how was things? You know, how was your Christmas? How were your holidays? Whatever. And... They said, oh, you know, it was good, but it was, it was hard, right, because of the political situation. And so I realized quite quickly this person held very different political beliefs to me, which was fine, but it really struck me the sorrow in their face and in their bearing that this particular divide had ruined what would otherwise be a really nice time for them and their family. Mm-hmm. And it can be really difficult to have that empathy, but it's obviously so important because, I mean, you're going to have people in your life that you don't agree with on all fronts. And so I really like that you've stressed this role of, you know, cross-partisan empathy, whether it's maybe Republicans, Democrats, as in your study or in other contexts as well, and still being able to get to that perhaps fundamental humanity. It's a bit, it's a bit wishy-washy, forgive me, but. <laughs> no, yeah, I think it's definitely what it is. And I think, you know, I just want to stress that disagreements themselves are not bad, right? It's actually a marker of democracy right like people are gonna disagree on how to do things and that's fine i think the problem is the weaponization of these disagreements and making this really harsh stereotypical views of what the other side represents and just we run into this problem that we might be fighting phantoms a little bit and that the real other might be actually a bit more reasonable than we thought and of course sometimes the loudest voices get the most broadcasted so we really see we really focus on political elites and people who kind of might be fomenting divides a little bit but the everyday voter might not be as extreme as you envision them to be and sometimes sitting together and having these conversations is one way to notice that and see all the common ground that is hiding in plain sight and so that actually brings me really nicely then to my next question because i understand that as part of your project by the way, your PhD seems to include everything in the world, like huge kudos. Mm-hmm. But I understand that another part is actually about conversation across divides. So what does that actually involve? Yeah. So for this study, we basically recruited Democrats and Republicans all over the U.S. to have conversations over Zoom, over polarized topics of disagreement. So we picked three topics that in the U.S. have a lot of disagreement. So one is immigration levels. The other one is climate change. And the third is gun laws. So people would first, in the first round of the study, they would answer some questions about their views. And then we would pair them to talk to someone the following week that they disagreed on on two of those three topics. And basically, they would come over Zoom. There would be a moderator that would tell them, like, a week ago, you said that you disagreed on if immigration levels should increase, decrease, or stay the same, for example. And then there was a couple other items. And then they would be like, oh, you're disagreeing on some of these. Can you share your opinions? And people would talk. And then after that, we would ask them questions about how the conversation went, how much they liked the out-party voters in general, and how much they trusted out-party, all these kind of things. And the reason why we had moderators at first is that we were really concerned that people would fight, that this would really escalate quickly. People were talking about these really polarized issues. And when we asked people how they thought these conversations were going to go, so we asked a different sample of people, 
overwhelmingly, people thought they were going to backfire horribly, that people would disagree more, that they would trust each other less and they would like each other less after having these conversations. But that was not what we found. We actually found that, you know, people were able to talk to one another in very civil ways. They kind of share their point of views. Most people were really pleasantly surprised of how the conversations went. We asked them how pleasant they thought the conversation was going to go before. And then we asked them how pleasant the conversation was after. And we see this huge effect where people thought the conversations were going to go kind of neutrally before because those are the people who already agreed to have them. And we kind of see these ceiling effects where the mode for the distribution of answers after is like close to 100 out of 100 scale. People say it was very, very, very extremely pleasant. So then we asked them, you know, like, does this reduce their animosity? And it seemed that it did not only towards that person, but their whole group, about 16 points in a 100 point scale, which is the equivalent of in the U.S. increase in effective polarization. So increase in animosity that we've seen in the last three decades. So. It was a really, really big effect. Yeah. Uh, that's incredible. Did that effect last? Yeah. So then that was the next question of like, is this something that is somewhat durable? And again, emphasizing that it's a hard effect to get because this is one interaction, 20 minute interaction with this stranger. So then we followed up with these people a month after the conversation and then three months after the conversation. And we found that the effects kind of reduced to about five point decrease in, in 100 point scale, but they remain significant and durable throughout this time. So it seems that even this one interaction can have, at least for as long as we ran the study, durable effects in, in people's animosity towards those who disagree with them. That is so interesting. I can definitely imagine a world where we intentionally have these conversations with people we disagree with and we know we disagree with them on a regular basis and having this effect sort of broadcast across society. And it makes me wonder as well about the role of social institutions. I mean, you know, social clubs and what have you, obviously churches have been a big one as well in the past historically for encountering people with other views. And maybe that's something we struggle with. Like, I mean, can you imagine what kind of fora? they could be in which we could actually realistically have these conversations. Yeah, that's such a great point. In the U.S., we talk a lot about like how sorting became a big thing where people sort themselves into communities. They share their beliefs and they're geographically separated from those who disagree with them. And it, so it becomes really tricky because more and more we are driving ourselves into worlds that have these cohesive views uh, with ours. And we, I think as a society, as we grew, we kind of lost a lot of the institutions, as you're saying, that were brokers in this space. As you said, like religion, you know, like churches or even places where people would go in their communities to have lunch and they would always interact with the, oh, I feel like in big cities and we become so anonymous to each other and it, you just kind of lose a lot of that sense of community and that cross cuts political divisions and we tend to want to work in places that share our ideology live in places that share our ideology and befriend those that share our ideology so we miss we miss a lot of that kind of opportunity so yeah i think i think it's definitely part of the reason that we see this and then i think it's kind of bolstered by the fact that when we go online, we see the worst representatives of the other side. Usually when we get access to cross-cutting information is through our media sources showing the terrible things that the other side had done. 
or, you know, our representatives condemning the other side. And we just really lose track of the real person on the other side that might be supporting them. And, and they lose track of us, right? Like they might think we're so much more extreme than we actually are because of those things. Absolutely. And so what's next to this British session? I mean, I know you're finishing up your PhD and I'm already asking you. So what's next? Mm-hmm. But I mean, where would you like to take this in an ideal world where you get all the funding and support you could possibly need? Yeah, I would love to do more field work. So partnering with practitioners. There's a lot of organizations in the U.S that foster cross-partisan conversations, you know, and just trying to get bigger samples, I think, of people having these conversations. I would love to do international work. So in my country, Brazil, doing work there to see how we can mitigate divisions there as well. And I think one big part of the broader project for me is now that we know that these conversations can be positive is mainly trying to encourage people to have them. Because the problem we have with these studies is that people are already willing to have these conversations in the first place, the ones that go on and and have them. So it's really kind of the barriers motivating people to have them because there's multiple things. People think the other person is going to be very hateful, so they don't want to engage or they think they don't know enough about politics to engage and mitigating those barriers to encourage people to have these conversations more often. And also on the other side, studying a little bit the potential boundary conditions. So are there conversations about topics that are so moralized and like abortion, for example, that it's hard for them to go well? Because if you're really holding on to your moral beliefs, it, it makes it much harder for you to find any type of common ground. Or are conversations with strangers actually easier to have than conversations with loved ones where with strangers, you actually expect perhaps the worst of them because you don't know anything about them. You just know their group membership that doesn't align with yours. But with loved ones, you know a lot about them and you have expectations and you had interactions with them uh, that, you know, like you want them to live up to that view that you have of them. So it actually might make the conversations particularly hard. So those are some lines of work that I'm excited to continue to explore. I love this. I love the energy. Just hearing what you're working on. I'm so optimistic about what you're going to do, which is fantastic. And what you've already done as well, of course. I don't mm-hmm. need to finish that at all. It's fantastic. Well, look, thank you so much for joining me today, Luza. And for those who are interested in learning more about your work, where can they find you? So I have a website, which if people want to learn a little bit more about the work and if they want to see any works in progress that we have in the pipeline, that's the best place to find them. Twitter as well. Is Twitter a good oh, place? Oh, yeah. And, and I'm on Twitter for now until Twitter implodes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm on Twitter. I tend to try to retweet science in this space. So if you're curious, just give me a follow. Amazing. Thanks so much again, Louisa. And for everyone else, until next time, this is Laura May with the Conflict Tipping Podcast from Mediate.com. This podcast has been brought to you by Mediate.com. For more information about Mediate.com products and services, please visit us at www.mediate.com.